Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another bright and hot day in a rather deserted city of Westminster nonetheless, as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I am Scott Challoner and I'm joined on today's programme by Samantha Murphitt. Samantha is a director at the Oxfordshire Gardener, a horticulture and landscape practice, and Brighter Splash, a creative marketing agency. Samantha, welcome to the programme and it's great to have you on the air with us today. Thank you, Scott. Lovely to be with you today and hello to everyone listening. Yes, um, to the listeners, um, it's a very uh, nice day for it. And for your benefit, we're recording this on the uh, the 26th of uh, May 2020. So very, very warm temperatures right after the bank holiday weekend. Now, Samantha, the purpose of uh, this discussion is, of course, to gather your take on leadership as a whole. So first and foremost, I think if we dive straight into it, what does that word leader actually mean to you personally? I'm interested to know because it can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people, can't it? Yes, I mean, the, the word leadership really, um, in terms of its actual nature, is, is I always believe it's to be well-planned in leadership. If you're well-planned, you can share your vision um, with integrity and fervor. And you can also explore it with, with people and your audience. More with curious as well. I always say be curious with questions and bring a sense of harmony, I'd say, with people or your audience. And then you build that entity to lead in achieving the vision. I think it's always good to be clear and personable. Mm -hmm. Um, When there are the inevitable hiccups, um, you know, take them straight on and talk about them. This can be in business or in the personal side of leadership. Nurturing people is is so, so important. It builds trust, uh, safe and caring leadership that matters for health and well-being. And uh, always, always share positive news and encourage people. One essential element I consider is a sense of humour and to make the pathway engaging and fun wherever you can. I think they're all incredibly important, um, Samantha. Um, of course, making it um, a fun and humorous experience, um, as you say, is incredibly important there. But also nurturing people. I think it's important to dwell on that just for a moment because leadership in a way is still a process of development, isn't it? When you become a leader, you are not the finished article. We're still very much learning. That's something that never stops, isn't it? No, absolutely. Always learning, always. And reshaping um, as as. As the world changes, and uh, that mm. is important, that you're able to be agile and and pick up on the sense of what's happening at the time and of the user experience. But you do have to be intuitive in leadership, definitely. You certainly do. I mean, it's very much about some um, adaptability, isn't it? Knowing mm. when to change direction when necessary. Um, and sometimes, inevitably, on that journey, we are going to maybe slip up once or twice, of course, as you mentioned, uh, hiccups um, just now. Um, do you think it's really possible to actually develop into an effective leader without maybe trying a couple of things, getting them wrong, and then embracing that as a learning experience? Yes, I think that there'll always be, um, through your through the years of being a leader, there will always be times when you don't you don't get things up, you know 100 percent right. That's inevitable. Um, but it's but it's how you then move forward with that. And um, and I do think a degree of honesty and openness is is always good, um, coupled with 
demonstrating how to continue with the vision, continue with the outcome, you know, what you're still looking to do, or if that's been slightly, uh, has, you know, has to be adapted, but still keep on that sort of on that line because that's, that's as a leader how they will recognize, how your team, your audience will recognize you. Um, as being able to and have that confidence in you, um, obviously dealing with whatever it is that's come up, but also being able to move forward with resilience and stay in the flow. That's important. Exactly. Resilience, adaptability in particular are no more um, important than they are in the current climate, of course, with the COVID-19 pandemic and different business leaders having to really feel their way through this quite trying time, I think it's fair to say. Um from a, a leadership perspective, though, Samantha, how have you yourself um, had to um, adapt from a leadership perspective toward this uh, crisis? Because I can imagine it's been a tremendous challenge in that respect as well. Yes, it, it has. I mean, all business leaders um, will be uh, affected um, in the coronavirus in this period. And um, certainly from the outset, we defined it to a big part of, of it, lead sort of and be connected with the community, connected obviously with our team, and um, to be visible leadership in the COVID-19 days. Uh, a couple of things we've done is uh, we did a, a, a short Instagram TV series on how to grow your own, you know, on the horticultural side to share with the community to help them, you know, whether you've got a windowsill, whether you've got a, a courtyard garden or, or a larger garden or what you can be doing to help, you know, help your health and well-being. You know, if you've got children at home, obviously they're homeschooling and things. And it was just a way to bring sort of a little bit of restfulness and a little bit of nature into that's everyday everybody's you know lives. If, if that was it, you know, they were interested. Um, certainly, from the team's perspective, um, you know, acceptance, early acceptance was crucial in terms of leadership. You know, we are in a pandemic um, that affects everyone, and it's going to have a grip for a period of time. And so, at times, we've had to take rapid responses when needed, when lockdown came in, um, with clarity and reasoning to people, um, through to pausing and making decisions over a longer period where we can gain more sustained understanding with industry bodies, the government advice for safe and secure leadership. So, yes, there's, it, it, it's about how you, how you deliver that leadership and stay familiar with your team, with the people that know you, you know, offer that offer reassurance when you can, um, but certainly always um, appear as they always know you helpful, um, sharing how they're getting on, you know, at home, you know, how they're being affected and and just provide good support, really. I think that heightened focus on well-being, mental health in particular, is um, a huge positive to uh, take from this time. And I also think you're absolutely right in what you say, Samantha, that it's really tested the ability of leaders to not just be proactive and have, of course, plans in place, but also have the ability to react and not just snap react, but also be able to take measured action over a period of time based upon changing circumstances. Um, We've also talked very briefly today about the importance of leaders to take people with them and to inspire. But if we focus on that just in a little bit more depth now, who would you say have been some of the big inspirations and influences on you throughout your career? So, um, yes, I had a leader in my early 20s and uh, she was a pioneer of her time in Cambridge's Silicon Fen telecommunications. Um, They were offering the alternative technologies to BT as a provider of a local loop of technology rather than reliance on BT to the final link to customer. So a huge move. Um, And she just had a deep resolve. You know, I was only in my early 20s, as I say. Her beliefs were just palpable, you know, in revolutionary technology. 
and her leadership in this market was um, it was as if she had superpowers working at pace with an assured approach to magnetize the team. Uh, the company was actually the first in the Silicon Valley to be valued at over one billion pounds in the 90s. Um, so, yeah, um, it was something really phenomenal to be part of. And uh, she she just had an air of calmness. She was quite statuesque and, and was always interested in you and to hear your personal ambitions. So, uh, so yeah, she was she was very key in my in how I sort of shaped my leadership. And my other was my father um, was a fervent entrepreneur in manufacturing, and so my early years were really fast moving, exciting, and always about the next development in business, which actually led to exponential growth. And he became the UK's leading optical manufacturer by the time I was twelve. He was very respected in his organization, and I saw firsthand his personal style of leadership, that he would be able to work on. He'd walk on the factory floor, go into the glazing lab, talk to people, because he had great manufacturing ability and knowledge. So these were really important sort of pillars that I recognized for my leadership um, to, you know, that, yeah, that I definitely behold. And um, creativity is at my core. I paint. And I started life as Samantha Hockney, so art has always been part of my life. And obviously, David Hockney is a huge contributor to the pop art movement and recently leading the way with digital iPad art, which I love the sense of that openness and accessibility that he's brought to everyday life. A huge degree of humility as well uh, from uh, what you've told me there, Samantha, another really important uh, facet of being um, a leader for sure. Um We've talked a lot about how inspiring those particular individuals have been and some of the most influential people out there can be people within business who are mentors, but also parents as well, as you've uh, mentioned there. And I think when we think about leadership in general, sometimes recognition for those sorts of individuals can fall by the wayside, can't it, Samantha? And the reason I say that is because when we think of leadership in this country, there is a temptation in this day and age, especially to think of celebrities politicians, sports personalities perhaps as well. And therefore, we tend maybe to have leaders within business going under the radar, people who are parents going under the radar, and people who just really do make a difference in that sense. So do you think you would align with those views in the sense that maybe we don't recognise people like that enough? I think in business it certainly could be more celebrated and recognised for its immense value. Um, the vibrancy that good leadership brings is, is huge and, and what it can achieve. Um, I think good leadership, I think it's more shared digitally now. I think it's more available and amplified by things like podcasts. And so it's more circulated. So people are finding out or, or can easily um, hear about good lead examples of that. But I do think, yes, the probably is as we, we don't, we don't recognize just just yeah, the true value of good good leadership well enough in business um, because it it changes things. The drama and the dramatic um, influence it has is it is phenomenal. It really is, and um, I've seen it firsthand. Um, and uh, it, it certainly changed my life, as I said in in Cambridge Silicon. Then, so, yeah, and. If you were to actually give some advice based upon your experience to somebody who was about to start their first day in a leadership role within business, what sort of advice would you have to give them? 
Um, I would say um, it's always good to have quite a keen energy if you're starting out. Um, that would come into my well-planned. So I would I would drive my energy through in my well-planned and research and you know know look at what you're going to be leading on. Um, understand your team. Get to know people. People people are everything really. And um, so be clear on your vision. Know what you want to set out, and that pathway really you know get that pathway really clear. Um, because I think you need to understand it yourself and, you know, do almost an FAQs with yourself, you know, what could be the pitfalls, what are the things that might come up so that by the time you actually go into delivering, you know, your actual first stage of leadership, it could be one-to-one, it could be, it could be with a small group, it could be with a large group, you know, but just, just if you get into that mindset of doing those sort of things, I think it makes it a lot easier to have that as your own bedrock of how that how that's going to form your leadership. Um, certainly, uh, leading people with insight, and often in my talks at the Oxfordshire Gardener, I will visualise winning the challenge with them. I explore what it means together, and then I'll illuminate the path of how we get there. And then what happens is you do see people blossom, and you see them push forward. And, and, and often achieve it, you know, remarkably well. They may need your help along the way. But if you create a sense of unity, um, I think, you know, you, you're going to achieve it together because that is part of leadership. You need to be achieving things together and, to, and then for them to know that. Absolutely right. Um, it's all about knowing, of course, when to step in as a leader to help um, with uh, people's development in that sense. And if we do continue to think about what the future holds for future generations, uh, Samantha, uh, before we do wrap things up on the uh, the programme today. In the context of the Oxfordshire Gardener and also Brighter Splash, what do you envision the next year holding for you and your staff in navigating this current COVID-19 situation, but also beyond the pandemic as well? Uh, we start to look beyond this, get through this situation. What does the future really hold for you then too? So, Again, um, in terms of our leadership, we're leading with positivity. I mean, with I mean, obviously with the Oxfordshire Gardener, we're we're able to bring that green, you know, verdancy and tranquility to people's homes, to their outdoor spaces at home. Um, to look at our latest project is, is actually dwell time because obviously they're spending more time at home in their garden and sort of looking um, together with them at their, their spirit and lifestyle and how they spend their days in that garden. Um, and also through to helping uh, with the pubs, restaurants, cafes with their plans for that outdoor seating space and perhaps looking at how you can do natural planting, whether it be in pockets to unwind in or views to relax with outdoor plants and, and so that urgency. So again, it's about bringing um, some comfort and uh, look at things like the space that people are going to be Unwinding and relaxing in, whether it be at home or going and visiting, like I say, a, a restaurant or a favourite place. Um, and the team, it, the good thing about that is it's it's a new, it's, it's a slightly new part of what we do, although it's obviously over our ten years' experience. So the team, it gives them, you know, a little bit of a new outlook, um, and they can build on everything they've done already, um, and just and just takes us another step forward. And I think that's important. I think it is important, again, to show the vision and just to say, you know, we're moving forward there. We're looking at kitchen gardens with chefs, with cooks and things and, and how people can 
relate to their space maybe slightly differently now. So again, I think it's it's building on our team and how and how they can have an effect on that because I think it's very um, the biggest reward really is to feel that you are um, giving something to somebody's space and making them you know happy or have a have a good experience if they're out and about and 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 seeking some informality because with the COVID nineteen obviously when people are out and about there's going to be sort of a slight formality obviously led by you know the safety and security and everything but if we can bring some softness to those surroundings with mm. planting and that green space I think could be um, really helpful to, to people and to businesses. I think it's um, fantastic and a real positive that there's been a heightened focus on that side of things as a result of uh, what's uh, going on at the moment, um, Samantha, for sure. And I think over the uh, the next year, as we start to hopefully emerge from the pandemic, but also not lose sight of that, I think it would be fantastic just to uh, catch up and have you back on the programme just to discuss how things um, have developed and really see what the future has held for you in them um, in that time as well. And as those hopes are really starting to be borne out, um, it's a shame that we are just about out of time on the, the programme today however but I have to say it's been a hugely enjoyable experience and also a real pleasure having you on the programme and also very very informative as well I think you've spoken with a great deal of passion today Samantha and I've really really enjoyed having you on the air it's been wonderful Thank you Scott it's been a pleasure and do take care and do stay safe as well uh, by all means with everything still going on too Thank you and thank you to everyone for listening Yes, thank you very much for everybody tuning in. That was Samantha Murphitt, Director at the Oxfordshire Gardener and Brighter Splash. Coming up next on the programme today, I will be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with Sir Andrew Strauss, currently Director of Cricket for the England and Wales Cricket Board. But notably, as a cricket player, Strauss was one of only three England captains to have secured the Ashes both at home and away in Australia. He also holds the accolade of being the England captain with the second highest number of test victories under his belt in history. And I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Sir Andrew enjoyed speaking with Jonathan about the topic of leadership. That's coming up next. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, and you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dresscothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> Um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Riscothi who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mo- mm. at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station because, of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career full stop. And, um, 
you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then you know, Warnie got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost i'd been i was a middlesex player i was mm. captain of middlesex all my focus was on helping middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever and then a week later i've scored a test century which is something i'd always dreamed out you know, literally all my life and then the thought of doing it at lords in your first test match. i mean it was literally the dream so and then suddenly i started thinking wow hold on I'm, potentially i've got a whole england career ahead of me and everything that entails so it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think... In those early years of your career, it's so important, I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people, and this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business, um, to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive mm. um source of advice for me so he was captain of Millsets you know, a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there um, but then I think on the day-to-day -day basis my wife Ruth played a, a huge mm. role you know and just in terms of because I, I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it and you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that you know you're more important than you you were previously or that that whole world is the real world and uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world nothing's changed other than mm -hmm. other people's perception of you and you need that grounding and again that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life i think so yeah I, I mean very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things being with different people sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international it's cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that, but... I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the, the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, th the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room. For the f I think it was in the 
final day of the series and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey. He looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. You right. know, and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it, it's just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we, we, we won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing I think that's such a key point you know, because there's, there's so there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation especially of children and school kids into loving that sport and so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that i got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating you know i felt like i'd really arrived well as a done. celebrity yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night unfortunately but I, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch, uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand, and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored a hundred in that fifth Test yes. match under real pressure, and that that was one that, you know, that that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours, and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now. Obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on, up to, and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um... Well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. You know, you're absolutely right. You know, I, I remember when I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually, the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. It's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different, shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals 
um, think they are perhaps more important than than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they, they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda. And, you know, if and when that happens, that, that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them? And that you couldn't really do without it. Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so. Yes. Okay. Uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many, um, because. They'll know your heart's in the right place and they, uh, they'll they feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some or whatever it might you might term to, to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, it um, doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and, and how... Um, impressive you might be as a person they will be wary of you mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly um now in 2015 obviously you were appointed as director of the ecb uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on um you brought in trevor bayliss as coach was what was brought in um you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket now in the abstract what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Holy Soul in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. Yeah. And the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially but also in in terms of 
players' focus and interest. Yes. Um, and we had to move. In fact, we didn't have to move at times. We need to get ahead of the time. <laughs> so, you know, we had to completely shift out both our philosophy, but also the way we played in order to do that. Um, and I was very lucky uh, having both Trevor Bayless and Owen Morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what have the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground right. and so you know you're relying on other people to have to you know buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves mm. and often you know in different time zones in different parts of the world so that was that was a very new experience for me well i think the strategy paid off and uh, i don't know about you but when watching that world cup final again as so many people did in this country it's once again it inspired another generation of uh especially school kids who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt. No, uh, how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life, and for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I actually. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in your in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become. An inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through and so after she died in December uh, 2018 uh, I came back and launched the foundation with two focuses number one to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer these mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers um, five to seven thousand people each year in this country are diagnosed with these no one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women, young women, that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top ten cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare; it's probably a misnomer. But it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. 
And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis, to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if it, you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know, we, I think as a society we need to be better than that. We, we've come a long way in so many different areas and especially around mental health. And we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think it's a, it's the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about Think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again. So that was an incredible day for us it last year. You could, you, Whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, was it 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then f for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth day and to see the the wave of support, you know, it's probably, it was just, I, myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way. You know, we felt so much uh, love and support there. And then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the, the funds raised. And um, we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing, not just the, the day at Lords. Um, I even saw some of the stuffiest members of the MCC, Andrew, wearing, re wearing red. So it w w what an extraordinary thing. Yeah, well, a lot um, of them wear red trousers <laughs> they, anyway, no, I think. But um, <laughs> no, it, absolutely. You know, they, they were right behind us. And, um, you know, we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. And I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown... Um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm -hmm. and potentially a, 
a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world, we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game. So we need to find another way of doing that. Um, I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but in two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and will be moving towards the IPL. And those are, you know, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As, a, as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to, I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I'm, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's got to be the Lords one, right? That sh sh of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanjay, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.